This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by Lean Cuisine. I've got a lot of opinions, and here's one. Sesame is everything, especially the sesame chicken from Lean Cuisine's Marketplace line, which is made with the kind of ingredients that I like to keep in my own kitchen. Natural chicken, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. Visit leancuisine.com backslash refinery29 for a coupon code. And feed your phenomenal with Lean Cuisine. From Refinery29, this is Strong Opinions, Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger. Have you noticed that feminism is trending? Beyonce, Emma Watson, and Taylor Swift have all declared themselves feminists. I decided that I was a feminist. I feel like I'm one of the biggest feminists, I mean, in the world. And feminist themes are used to sell everything. From fancy clothes in Chanel's 2014 runway show, where models walked in a mock feminist protest, to Verizon's bundled cell phone, internet, and TV plans. Encourage her love of science and technology and inspire her to change the world. It seems like feminism is everywhere, which is amazing. It's about time. But has it resulted in any tangible change? Not to be a Debbie Downer, but I can't help but notice that white women still earn 79 cents for every dollar a man earns. Asian, black, and brown women make less than that. And Senate Republicans have unanimously voted against legislation to close this wage gap. Access to birth control and reproductive health care is constantly under attack, and the U.S. lacks a paid leave, as you know. Women are losing their partners, friends, and brothers at the hands of police violence, while dozens of black women have died in police custody with no real reason why. So can the $6 L'Occitane Solidarity Lip Balm topple this patriarchy? What about a $95 Feminist as Fuck t-shirt? While the proceeds of feminist merch often go to organizations that support women, is that actually enough to change these policies and practices that have been holding women back? What happens when a social movement gets so commodified that shopping becomes a political act? Hold on to your pussy hats, tuck in your future's female t-shirt. We are going on a deep dive into the buying and selling of feminism. My name is Andy Zeisler. I'm the co-founder of Bitch Media. I'm also the author of the book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. Andy's book helped me clear up so much confusion that I had around the ubiquity of feminism. On one hand, it's amazing, but I also couldn't help feel a little gross seeing it being used to sell stuff that clearly wasn't liberating or helping women. I've been writing about feminism as it relates to media and pop culture for more than 20 years. It's been interesting to watch the way in which popular culture and the media have embraced feminism at some times, have dismissed it at other times, and most recently have co-opted it for consumer purposes. There's a way in which products marketed to women are sort of marketed with this language of empowerment this language of, like, you're a woman, you're fantastic, you're confident, you should be using our product. And so it sort of frames feminism as a sort of individual quality that any woman can possess, 
rather than as a very relevant, very unfinished social and political movement. Marketplace feminism is the act of harnessing the language, the imagery, the associations of feminism for strictly capitalist purposes. There was an article in Adweek yesterday about how brawny paper towels has replaced their big burly male mascot with a, you know, obviously less burly female mascot. And the executives who made this decision, you know, for the branding company are acting like they invented fire or something. It's sort of like this is so courageous of us to use a woman on our paper towel packaging and, you know, they're selling them exclusively at Walmart, which if you know anything about Walmart, you know it has a long, long history of discrimination against its female employees in hiring and promotion and was the subject of, I think, the largest class action gender discrimination suit in history. So marketplace feminism sort of takes all those things into account and repackages them and sells them as a way for women to sort of feel good about themselves or feel like they're doing something to advance the cause of women. Historically, what products have been marketed to women with feminist values? Well, the first big one's uh, cigarette marketing in the early part of the 20th century when women were kind of granted the right to smoke in public places and when women, when more women were starting to to enter into a public life. So there was this, you know, real kind of light bulb moment for the cigarette industry that they could really double their profits and open up this whole new market if they spoke to women in the language of liberation. Like now you've been liberated from, you know, smoking in secret in your home or being, you know, trapped in your home in general. Now you can smoke on the street. And so there was this real, very contrived, considered link between liberation and cigarettes. And one of the great PR stunts of the time was this march down Fifth Avenue in New York City where women were paid to sort of hold their cigarettes, their Lucky Strike cigarettes in the air, and they were called Torches of Freedom. So, I mean, that's obviously incredibly on the nose, but cigarette advertising did continue in that vein for a long time. When Virginia Slims came to market in the 60s, you know, it was with, again, this idea that women were liberated, that they now have the freedom to smoke right alongside men. It used to be, lady, you had no rights, no right to vote, no right to property, no right to the wage you earned. That was back when you were laced in, hemmed in, and left with not a whole lot to do. That was back when you had to sneak up to the attic if you wanted a cigarette. Smoke in front of a man? Heaven forbid. You come a long way, baby, to get where you got to today. Introducing new Virginia Slims, the slim cigarette for women only, tailored for the feminine hand. 
slimmer than the fat cigarettes men smoke, with the kind of flavor women like. Mellow, mild Virginia flavor. Meal Virginia Slim in the Slim Purse Pack. You've got your own cigarette now, baby. You've come a long, long way. In the mid-90s, a writer I knew was like, I got this credit card mailing and it's about the 100th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention where there were all these resolutions made about women's equality and what women were now empowered to do. And the idea that it was linking feminism to credit cards and the ability to sort of go into debt seemed so comical to me because those two things have really, they don't have anything to do with one another except that, you know, for a long time, women could not get credit on their own. They had to have their husband or their father co-sign for a credit card. So there was a link, but the idea that MasterCard was sort of exploiting it via Seneca Falls just seemed just so craven to me that it was, I never forgot about it. It was just so weird. Even just the last five years have brought so many examples and, you know, some of them are just nuts. This eyedrop company has this new campaign called iPowerment to battle chronic dry eye syndrome. And they're using images of all these famous women from Rosa Parks to Grace Kelly to Frida Kahlo to market eye drops. Again, a completely gender neutral product that has nothing to do with empowerment as it is classically understood. But they are really harnessing that language and saying, we're different because we want to empower you as women to not have dry eyes anymore. The argument in those rooms with, I'm sure, very well-meaning men and women is that, well, at least it's giving people an introduction into feminism. Is that a valid argument? I think that there is, it is valuable to a point to have any social movement get kind of a high profile or a higher profile or a profile that introduces it to a wider audience. I mean, we've seen that in almost every social movement in America, that sort of mainstream acceptance that often comes in the form of, you know, celebrity spokespeople or product endorsements. Those really do normalize whatever, you know, social justice cause we're talking about. So with feminism, yeah, I mean, there has always been a history of trying to hook the values and the ethics and the political goals of a movement to high profile, you know, whether it's people or causes or products. So having someone, for instance, like Beyonce, make feminism a really visible part of her brand introduces people to a, to feminism in a way that is very different from how people became familiar with feminism in the past. It's a much more optically attractive way. Celebrity feminism, it's, it's tricky because, again, it's a really valuable way in, especially for people who might not be exposed to feminism through their schools or their friendships or their parents or whatever. But it's tricky because feminism, it's, it's not a brand and it's not a static movement. It's a way of thinking, a way of advocating, 
a set of ethics. And most of these ethics and most of the political goals are not necessarily the ones that celebrities are excited about. Celebrities tend to gravitate toward the the easiest and the sort of most already accepted issues of feminism, whether we're talking about, you know, body image or, you know, equal pay for equal work or reproductive rights. And that's great. But honestly, those are always the issues that have gotten the most airtime within feminist movements because those are the ones most relevant to sort of middle class, white, educated women. So there was already no real lack of of PR for those issues. My question is, you know, what can celebrities do about the ways in which feminism still has so much work to do on, you know, a policy level in ways that just aren't sexy, you know, that don't look good on a T-shirt, that don't look good on a magazine cover? Uh, What about those issues and what can celebrities really do for them? You talk about this evolution in your book. It went from a label that was shunned to one that's now embraced. Can you talk a little bit about the steps in that evolution, like how we got from man-hater to Beyonce? It didn't actually go from, you know, a rejection to an embrace. There was an initial embrace during the second wave through Ms. Magazine when Ms. made a really conscious effort to reach out to celebrities to get them on board with a very specific goal, which was passing the Equal Rights Amendment. And so if you look at issues of Ms. in the early to late 70s, there are celebrities on the cover. They're the same celebrities who were on the cover of Ms. as were on the cover of People. So there was a way in which having this tangible goal helped to get celebrities to rally behind it. The ERA, or the Equal Rights Amendment, is a proposed amendment to the Constitution written to guarantee equal rights for all citizens, regardless of sex. The goal was to end the legal distinctions between men and women with regards to things like divorce, property, and employment. It was first introduced to Congress in 1923, but it didn't pass, even though it had bipartisan support. But in 1979, its time had come. The ERA had passed Congress, but it needed to be ratified by three-quarters of state legislatures. And people were feeling it. It became the most popular celebrity issue. Mary Tyler Moore was behind it, so was Robert Redford and Shirley MacLaine and Warren Beatty. And awesome elected officials like Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to the U.S. Congress, also supported it. But it didn't pass. And as of today, the Constitution still does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. The Equal Rights Amendment obviously was never ratified. But what happened in the wake of the second wave was that there was this massive backlash against feminism in the 1980s. So all of a sudden, there was this idea that feminism had worked but had also harmed women and had harmed men. So nobody wanted to identify with that. And so that's when you, you know, you got a lot of this really sort of bananas 
representations of feminist women or of independent women, like in Fatal Attraction. It not only fell out of favor, but it became something that people sort of actively pushed back against in the way that they would say, well, sure, I believe in equal rights, but I'm not a feminist. So the word itself was so loaded with this kind of unattractive baggage that it was really it was really hard to find others who cared about it in any sort of public way. During the 90s, which is when I was, you know, in college and sort of most immersed in youth culture, was when people started seeing the idea that the backlash shouldn't have happened, that feminism still was this very unfinished project. And that the 90s was also a place where popular culture sort of embraced feminism in some ways. Uh, one of those ways was Riot Girl, the music and zine and uh, art movement that really looked at the world from a young woman's perspective and said, you know, we were told since we were children that we're all equal now, but now that I'm, you know, getting into the workforce, now that I'm in school, I see that this isn't true, that so many of the same issues that have really, you know, plagued the cause of equality are still there. And so that was a point at which people began to embrace feminism because they saw people they admired doing it, whether it was Riot Girls, whether it was socially conscious groups like Fugazi or the Beastie Boys. There was a way in which feminism kind of got its cool factor back. And then in the, the 2000s, the rise of the internet and social media did become this much more collaborative network. We saw feminism really flowering online and really making these connections between so many issues and really thinking about it as a much more widespread, much more inter intersectional, much less monolithic issue. And I think that's where the underground bubbling up of feminism that would sort of eventually be adopted by celebrities like Beyonce, that's where that happened. My theory is that Beyonce adopting feminism as, as a big part of her brand was made possible by the amount of intersectional feminism that was really bubbling up from social media and sort of making itself known. Who do you take seriously as a celebrity feminist and who do you think is putting into place marketplace feminism? I do see Beyonce as, as someone who is really walking the walk. Again, it's not just in the sort of feminist issues that, you know, white women have always taken up. I mean, certainly with Lemonade and, you know, I'm probably the wrong person to talk about this as a white woman. But with Lemonade, she really talked about the way in which black feminism is very different than white feminism and isn't necessarily the kind of cultural force that white feminism has been, but that it's really special and that that she wants, you know, black women to embrace it. So Beyonce, you know, as an empire unto herself is really able to make her own rules as far as how much of an activist she's going to be, who she's going to give her money to, who she's going to elevate and put a spotlight on. And, you know, in many ways, she's choosing to do that, not always in a showy way, but, you know, maybe by 
highlighting the next generation of black feminist activists. Emma Watson is an interesting one because she sort of, you know, kind of had her big feminist coming out moment as an ambassador to the UN for a program they started called He for She, which was interested in getting more men into feminism. And that was, you know, in itself somewhat controversial, the idea that, you know, feminism hasn't done enough to welcome men. And the more I've spoken about feminism, the more I have realized that fighting for women's rights has too often become synonymous with man-hating. Emma Watson also decided at some point that she was going to take a year off acting and really devote herself to learning more about feminism. She started a feminist book club. Uh, she's been very vocal about wanting to learn more. At the same time, Emma Watson is not in the same place as Beyonce. She is still part of a an industry that is notoriously unequal for women, both in front of and behind the camera. And so, for instance, her new movie is Beauty and the Beast, which is an interesting choice for a feminist because it's basically a fairy tale about Stockholm syndrome and domestic violence. Is there a way in which having Emma Watson in that role sort of intrinsically makes it a more feminist role? Probably not, but she does have an opportunity doing press for this movie to talk about, you know, what it means that she did it, what it means that she did it as a feminist. So I do think there are opportunities there, and I do think there are some celebrities who are really interested in how they can use their platform to make feminism more accessible. And it was something I really grappled with at the beginning. The kind of Stockholm Syndrome question about this story. Stockholm Syndrome is where a prisoner will take on, will kind of like take on the characteristics of and, and fall in love with in this sort of really strange way their captor. Bell actively argues and disagrees with him constantly. She has none of the characteristics of someone with, with um, Stockholm Syndrome because she keeps her independence, she keeps her independence of mind. And I also think that there is a very intentional switch where in my mind Bell decides to stay. She gives as good as she gets. You know, he bangs on the door, she bangs back and she, you know, and she, there's this defiance that, you know, you think I'm going to come and eat dinner with you and I'm your, I'm your prisoner, I'm your, like, I'm your cat, absolutely not. And, you know, it's only when they, and I can't say the beautiful thing about the book. Previously, female insecurity played a large role in marketing products to women. How did the switch from appealing to insecurity to now empowerment happen so quickly? And what is the next step? What is the next buzzword? What's the next feeling that's going to be used in order to get us to buy shit we probably don't need? I am just kind of flabbergasted and constantly amused at the fact that just in the past five years, advertisers and marketers have realized, wow, maybe if we don't make women feel like crap, they're more likely to buy our product. Maybe we don't want to tell them that they're fat or that their eyelashes are too stubby. 
Maybe we want to tell them that our product makes them more confident, makes them stronger, makes them better women. It's really a matter of looking at who does this benefit? Does it really benefit women or does it benefit a parent company that just wants to sell as many units of product no matter what it is? I think we're really lucky to live in a time when it's incredibly easy to find out who owns your product, who makes it, under what conditions is it made, who are the workers, are they treated fairly, are they paid fairly. We have much more of that information at our fingertips than ever before. So being a conscious consumer, if that's what you want to do, is not as hard as it used to be. And so you can you can really see whether these corporations and these brands do do have an interest. We as a culture feel like capitalism is absolutely immovable, that we can't do anything about it. So the best thing we can do is participate in it, but do it consciously. I don't necessarily feel that that's true. And I also really don't feel that capitalism and feminism are able to coexist past a certain point. So when I hear about a product where, you know, 20% of the purchase is going to Planned Parenthood, 20% of the purchase is going to, you know, another social justice or service organization, I wonder why aren't people just giving money to those organizations? Like, do they feel that purchasing stuff is really the only option they have because that's the world we live in. But the idea that we lack the imagination to imagine a world where capitalism doesn't sort of rule everything is very telling about how far we're going to be able to go with movements like feminism. The 2016 national survey by the Washington Post and Kaiser Foundation found that 63% of women aged 18 to 34 identify as feminists. So it's no surprise that feminist themes move products. Finally, our realities are being reflected back to us. We're not crazy. We're not fat. We're not ugly. It's an amazing time to be alive and buy shit. Of course, this feminist light, low-calorie liberation associated with marketplace feminism makes us feel better but it won't end the capitalist system that makes us need feminism in the first place. No, this does not mean that you need to throw away your Futures female t-shirt, unless of course you believe the future is non-binary, but it does mean that we cannot equate shopping with activism. Activism is tweeting at your senator to end the use of racial profiling as a police tactic. It's standing up for someone who's getting harassed on the subway. It's showing up to a Black Lives Matter event it's getting involved in your community or your neighborhood, even if you're a renter. These tiny actions ensure that the feminist values we so boldly wear on our t-shirts have a chance to materialize in reality. To quote my friend and fellow podcaster, Aminat Tussauds, we cannot afford to shop our way through the next four years. So I just got off the train and I'm walking home, but I needed to report back because on my ride home, I was sitting across from an ad that was pale pink 
And in big white letters, it said, who run the world? I'm, I'm almost positive that the ad was not selling tickets to a Beyonce show, but I am unsure of what the ad was actually selling. Obviously, Andy and I had very strong opinions about the buying and selling of feminism this week, and now I want to hear yours. So tweet me at PopCultPirate or tag me in your posts on Instagram using at PopCulturePirate, and I can't wait to hear your opinions on this topic. I could talk about it for days, literally, and I have been since like three weeks ago. This episode was produced by Sarah Bernard and edited by me with help from Jesse Ridner and Daniel Huerta for Refinery29. We recorded with Paul Ruess. Check out our video channel based on this podcast at facebook.com slash strong opinions loosely held. And please subscribe to Strong Opinions Loosely Held wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you back here next Monday.